Welcome to Taiwan Brief, issues impacting Taiwan. I'm Donovan Smith in Taichung, Taiwan, and welcome to the program. All right, this is part of a, this is a, the second part of a four-part series, though each part individually can be listened to on its own. However, if you listen to all four, you'll find that it creates a rather larger picture. Now, of course, this series is focused on China. Now, what happens in China, and particularly whether it remains stable or not, does have quite a bit of impact here on us in Taiwan. So let's dive right in. So could Chairman Xi Jinping fail to be elected to serve a third term at this year's 20th Communist Party conference? Or more broadly, how stable is the Chinese Communist Party's rule over China? Now, the truth is, we don't know. We obviously can't look at opinion polling, see voting patterns on the issues, or anecdotally easily come to conclusions on how 1.4 billion people of widely different backgrounds and situations think. The demise of Xi and the CCP party state has been predicted for nearly as long as both have been in power, and currently both look firmly in control. But all things come to an end eventually. It's just a question of when and how. Usually, it is slowly, then suddenly, which, in the case of regimes, is a long, slow burning of unpopularity over issues that eventually explodes into a prairie fire of discontent, often sparked by the regime mismanaging a crisis or multiple crises. Now, authoritarian regimes are binary by nature. Pent-up frustrations have no outlet in polls or in protests without serious risk, or even by venting on social media in many cases. This means that either an authoritarian regime exists and manages to control those frustrations, or it doesn't and ceases to exist. There are only so many people they can shoot before being overwhelmed. Now, in my first show in this series, I pointed out that in recent years, the CCP's management of crises has followed a pattern. First, a crisis occurs that is either woefully underprepared for or actually created by very poor long-term planning. Then, the initial response is confused and mishandled as low-level officials refuse to take any risks, and valuable time is lost. Then, the top echelons of power step in, usually too late, and take a brutalist and extreme approach, often causing more damage and destruction in its wake. Now, that first show pointed out that this approach in recent years could very well have undermined trust among the public in the ability of the CCP to effectively cope with crises. Now, future shows will look at how China could be facing multiple crises in the near future, the existing crises are already facing, but this particular show looks at existing slow burn issues that erode people's underlying tolerance for the regime. Now, I was living in China much of the year for a few years, starting just over 10 years after Tiananmen. By this point, the majority Han population was largely supportive, or at least tolerated, the CCP regime. That most likely wasn't the case in the conquered portions of the Chinese Empire, like Tibet, 
Inner Mongolia and East Turkestan, a.k.a. Xinjiang. Though harsh repression of these people has been ongoing, under Xi, the repression has sharply escalated. In the early 2000s, the situation in China was much like that of Taiwan during the very later stages of authoritarianism. Han Chinese were largely free to do what they wanted as long as they didn't publicly criticize the party state, though they often did in private, but without fear, and occasionally critical articles would sneak past the censors in the non-state press. Most people understood that they were in a period of transition from a collectivized and poverty-stricken communist society to a modern one, and that such transitions are rarely smooth. The key was the sense that things were moving in the right direction, and the CCP with it. The state was progressively removing itself from the micromanagement of people's lives. The economy was booming. Incomes were rising fast, and opportunities were plentiful. The CCP banked heavily on the key commodity of hope for individual economic well-being, increased self-expression, and the so-called glory of the nation. Since Tiananmen, the existing discontent has been largely kept under control, and the populace has largely been willing to accept the downsides in exchange for the benefits the CCP claims to have provided them. But now, could it still be said that things are moving in the right direction? and the CCP with it. Now, those downsides exist and have been simmering for a long time, largely unaddressed. For example, one of the main reasons for public support for the Tiananmen protesters was frustration over official corruption, which is still alive and well. Corruption is deeply corrosive to any system, as it strikes at the basic human sense of fairness. It means the rich, powerful, and well-connected can do what they like, regardless of the rules. But the rest not only have to follow the rules, but also have to swallow the rules being waived on behalf of the powerful at your expense. While all boats are rising fast during boom times, it is somewhat easier to swallow if still frustrating and galling. And the propaganda machine under Xi has been loudly touting their crackdowns over the issue, some of which does appear to have had some effect, at least on the public displays of ostentatious wallowing in ill-gained wealth, but much of the crackdown also appears to have targeted political opponents rather than taking on genuinely rooting out the problem. Perhaps the propaganda has convinced the public that the situation has the key component of moving in the right direction. But again, we can't be sure. If not, then the party state has a serious problem. Corruption is also deeply tied to many of the other social and political ills that drive people to protest. Protests actually happen quite often in China, but are generally over local or specific issues. The Chinese government stopped supplying data on this in 2005, but reports of protests still leak out. The most common ones are summarized by the USC-US-China Institute this way. 
Quote, the protests often complain about government action or inaction, but the grievances cover a wide range of issues involving labor disputes, rural land grabs, environmental damage, or perceived threats, how women or minorities are treated, the actions of other nations, conditions for demobilized soldiers, and policing practices. Now, most of these issues are still very common, and the first few are directly connected to corruption, and the rest to a sense of fairness in general. Pollution is still terrible and often toxic to the water and food supplies and is life-threatening. And the factories producing it are often able to get away with it by paying off local politicians or officials. China's air pollution is among the world's worst and is particularly nasty and fatal considering its components. It's also hard to hide when the air is so bad visibility is comparable to fog. Now, among other corruption-related sources of protests, land grabs are a common problem, and labor disputes are never-ending. They will remain never-ending as long as the right people can be paid off to look the other way, or, especially in the case of land grabs, they are done directly by the local officials that you're supposed to be able to appeal to in the first place. Since she took office, harsh policing has been increased and women and minorities are being treated considerably worse than even just a few years ago. Traditional gender roles are being enforced again and LGBTQ communities are being driven back underground. While no good statistics are available on anything in China, there may be other issues that also could cause discontent. Though attitudes from person to person may vary on each issue, certainly not everyone is happy about the ever-increasing social controls, the rise of social credit scores, the tightening of censorship, oh, and, by the way, the genocide. Previously, I had assumed that the Chinese party state was doing a pretty good job of keeping a lid on widespread knowledge of the genocide, but apparently not. A scholar on the Uyghur genocide told me that she had asked around among her peers based or who visit to China, and it isn't as much of a secret as I'd have originally thought, an assertion which is supported by the now open denials of it in CCP propaganda news outlets. Obviously, there is no point in denying something if nobody knows about it in the first place. Now, no doubt there are many in China who look down on the Uyghurs and support the party state cracking down on them in the name of fighting terrorism. But people could begin to connect the dots and realize that elements of the surveillance, propaganda, and repressive techniques pioneered in Xinjiang are now starting to appear in their own neighborhoods and in their own lives. Disappearances of people you know Cameras everywhere using facial recognition, social credit scores enforcing compliance, and the rise of apps to control movement during the pandemic are hard to ignore. And will the so-called temporary social control measures and apps be lifted when the pandemic is over? Now, rule by fear and control is brittle but very effective. Until it's not. Even the so-called benefits 
the party state provides are starting to fray, especially the almighty promise of ever-increasing prosperity. However, let's keep in mind here that this benefit that the CCP is claiming is effectively getting out of the way of the people to build prosperity for themselves. So for them to claim it is quite disingenuous. However, even official numbers show GDP growth slowing. But a common rule of thumb used by China watchers is to cut the official numbers in half, if not by more. Official numbers now average roughly 5-6% to 6% annual GDP growth, which, if true, is quite good, but not quite the stellar boom times of 10% or more annual growth. If the China watcher rule of thumb is true, then the economy is still ticking over nicely for an advanced economy at 2 to 3%. But it's not enough to keep up anywhere near the pace of widespread poverty reduction for the masses the party has built its reputation on, especially as wealth disparities between well-connected friends of the CCP and the general public continues to widen. For young people, the economic future doesn't look as bright as it once did. As one VOA article summarizes it neatly, quote, fed up with a culture of overwork, through-the-roof housing prices, and skyrocketing living costs, many Chinese youth are lying flat to express their frustration with a lack of upward social mobility. Realizing that ever-increasing prosperity is slowing, the government has pivoted to making social, quote, reforms. These are often quite popular, but many are double-edged and are also creating pockets of deep resentment. Video game usage among the young has been sharply curtailed. Online pop fan groups have been shut down. More conservative norms are being enforced across the board, and cram schools have been shut down. Many of these are intended to cope with real problems, such as shutting down Bitcoin miners to reduce stress on the power grid and promoting healthier lifestyles for young people away from video games, obsessing over K-pop groups, and spending nearly every waking moment not in school, stuck in cram schools. But again, much of this wasn't handled well. For example, the shutting of the cram schools was done, was done with very little warning, throwing large numbers of people out of work, shuttering tons of small businesses, and burning anyone who owns stock in the larger education chains that promptly collapsed. All of those people, and people who may have depended on those people's incomes, were no doubt angry and in many cases financially ruined almost overnight. And do you think the wealthy and well-connected are going to stop getting access to further education for their kids? I don't think so. They'll find a way around it. And of course, that will further resentment going forward. Individually, these reforms are probably popular with the public at large, but collectively they make it very likely that many if not most, people have been negatively impacted in some form or another by one of these so-called reforms and bear resentment. In short, 
These reforms aren't necessarily the home runs the regime needs to shore up support while the economic engine cools. Now, there is another long, slow-burning issue. The household registration, or WHOCO, problem. This system ties people to a locale, whether they currently live there or not, and all benefits flow from that. Like most countries rapidly industrializing, there's been a massive influx of people into urban areas. In China, that has created a, what they call, floating population of an estimated 376 million in late 2020, or 26.6% of the nation's population. These formerly rural people are a permanent underclass with highly restricted access to health care, public services, and unemployment insurance in the cities they live in. Most troubling for parents is that their children are denied quality education, arbitrarily denying their children a pathway out of this permanent underclass. It is extremely difficult to change their household registration, and economic opportunities are scant in their so-called homes, back where they came from originally, or their parents. This creates a deeply troubling and unfair situation of dispossession for over a quarter of the population. Now, so far, the CCP has managed to keep all of these issues from boiling over. And individually, none are likely to cause instability. In combination, however, it adds up to a wide and pervasive sense of unfairness and resentment, though among how many we can't quantify. If this resentment is widespread, and people with different resentments recognize the inherent unfairness in their own plight has the same party-state roots as those of other people, then a crucial shift happens away from just, I'm being screwed, to, we're all being screwed. Then, the prairie fire of discontent is just waiting for the right spark. All right, stay tuned for parts three and part four of this series. Uh, in the next part, we'll talk about the very recent series of crises that the Chinese Communist Party has been badly mishandling. And then in part four, we will look at some new or potential ones that are brewing that could really throw things uh, for a loop and also some potential possible outcomes to all of this for the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping. Sean here. As you know, we're back. And so far, things have been working really well with our new processes. But we still need your support. Go to patreon.com slash Taiwan Report or hit that bell and subscribe button. Most importantly, press those likes, upvotes, what have you, so we can be seen. And don't forget, for more content like this, support us at report.tw.